Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. On this podcast, I talked with Alex. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. On this podcast, I talked with Alice Eccles, a professor of history and the Barbara Streisand Chair for Contemporary Gender Studies at the University of Southern California. Her book, Shortfall, Family Secrets, Financial Collapse, and a Hidden History of American Banking, published by New Press, is the topic of this show. Eccles offers a narrative and social history of American capitalism in the years of the Great Depression by focusing not on Wall Street but on Main Street and the men who ran hundreds of small-town building and loan associations across the nation. Situated in Colorado Springs, she reconstructs the life of her shrewd and ambitious grandfather, Walter Davis, who emerged from virtually nowhere to become a small-town finance man running the City Savings Building and Loan Association. He gained and betrayed the trust of hundreds of depositors who invested their life savings to secure the American dream of home ownership and financial security. They found their lives destroyed by an unregulated industry and Davis's dishonest practices. Shortfall is both the story of American capitalism told from the bottom up and of Eccles un- uncovering her own family's secrets of ill-gotten gain, decadence, scandal, loss, and ultimate despair that reflects the lives of millions across the nation. Shortfall offers lessons in the dangers associated with small-town finance men, land speculators, depositors in denial, ill-equipped investigators, inexperienced judges, and an unregulated financial marketplace. Here is my conversation with Alice Eccles. It's my pleasure to have Alice Eccles here with, with me. We're in beautiful Santa Fe. Alice, welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. You tell a personal story of capitalism from the bottom up with a wide range of implications. Before we get into the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Shortfall. It's great to be here, Lillian. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book. Um, as for my background, I am best known as a historian of the long 60s. Um, that is to say, from the period, let's say, beginning in the 50s through sometime in the 1970s. And my first book was a history of the women's liberation movement. It's called Daring to be Bad. It became a classic. It was a controversial book, but um, it did become a classic. And my second book was a biography of the rock singer Janis Joplin, Scars of Sweet Paradise, The Life and Times of Janis Joplin. A great book. (laughs) Thank you very much. And then I did a collection of my essays because I I did a fair amount of freelancing, um, writing for The Village Voice, writing for The Nation, um, the uh, L.A. Weekly, this was back when these were real papers, right, the Weekly and the Village Voice, where they were, you know, really publishing some of the most exciting journalism. Um, and that book um, of those essays was called Shaky Ground, 
And then I did a history of disco that came out in 2010 on Norton called Hot Stuff, uh, uh, Disco and the Remaking of American Culture. So I'm somebody who is, as I said, 20th century U.S. historian, but really best known for my work on the long 60s and really the political movements and the popular music of that period. Now, shortfall was a real departure. And this is the story of how it came about that I wrote this book that is not in my period. It really deals primarily with the 20s and 30s, and that is not a cultural history, although in some sense, you know, I certainly try to write the culture into this history. This is a book about the underbelly of American capitalism. And I think many people will be surprised that I locate this underbelly in the building and loan business, because many of us, when we think about the building and loan business, if we ever think about it, we think about It's a Wonderful Life and George Bailey and Bailey Brothers Building and Loan Association, where, you know, you have this hardworking, this ah, generous, kind-hearted promoter of the working classes who does his best to do right by his depositors. And what I discovered when I was doing the research for Shortfall was that that wasn't always the case in this industry, it's fair to say. Now, the way that I came to this is that when I was in my early 40s, about 25 years ago, um, I was home visiting my parents, and we had had a difficult dinner. And afterwards, my father took my sister and me aside and said, you know, you need to know something about your mother's history. And he explained that her father had built, had, 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 that her father had been a banker during the depression and that his bank had failed and that he had had to leave Colorado Springs, which I was about the only thing I knew really about my mother's background was that she had grown up in Colorado Springs. He had left Colorado Springs and he had gone on the lam. And he said a bit more. And it was clear that his life had not turned out well. He also said that her father was a cat. He was a philanderer. He was somebody who had a long standing affair with his uh, secretary. Turned out that she was his stenographer. So he told the story that um, made my mother's life look very different from what I had imagined it had been. I never thought of her as having grown up with any difficulties whatsoever. I, I, I had a sense that she had grown up with some money, but I didn't really know much about that. So this was a kind of, uh, this was a curious story. But my father very much presented her history as one in which her father had been a victim of the Depression. So after I'd written the Janis Joplin book, and after my mother had moved into assisted living, by this point, my father is dead. It's a few years later. I started to get interested in this story about my grandfather, this um, this guy who had been on the land during the Depression. Now, let me ask you, why was this such a secret? Why was it a secret? <sighs> I mean, is there a short answer to that? Because I've got a bunch of <laughs> I've got a bunch of questions for you. Um. Well, okay. Was there, shame? To... Was there shame involved here? Oh, terrible shame. There's terrible shame. I mean, 
what I didn't exactly know, and I could only tell once I started doing the research for the book and reading the newspapers of that era, this was a huge story. I mean, my grandfather's disgrace was something that was splashed across the headlines in national newspapers. I wasn't going to say this on this podcast because I want people to buy the book, but I might as well. What my father told me, which was perhaps the most scandalous, was that my grandfather had committed suicide in a New York City jail cell when he was captured by the police in New York after being on the lam for about six months. So when that happened, when he was arrested, and he was only in jail for a few hours because he committed suicide his first night there. I mean, imagine this. I mean, for my, for my family, uh, having somebody who was a suicide in the family, that alone was hugely shameful. But also, when his building and loan business failed, I mean, the coverage of that failure in the state of Colorado was decidedly negative in its treatment of my grandfather. In no way did the newspapers think that he was a victim of the Depression and a victim of plummeting uh, property values. Because, of course, building and loans, their bread and butter really was property, you know. Um, they didn't. They thought he was an embezzler. And so when, when his business failed in June of 1932, um, and he's on the lam for about six months, um, my, my mother and her mother and their relatives really were stigmatized. I mean, it was assumed that he was guilty. Um, as I said, the, the newspaper coverage was decidedly overwhelmingly negative, and they presented him as not just a philanderer, but in the local paper as a bigamist. Uh, the coverage of the family at points was also negative. And there was the presumption among many local people, many townspeople, that my grandmother had actually colluded with her husband. Um, actually, the FBI considered uh, pursuing charges, and so did the um, um, uh, Attorney General of Colorado considered pursuing charges against her after her husband had committed suicide. Now, you tell a really good story. It's a really interesting story. But the story is more than just about your family, which is there and really provocative. But it's also the story, I think I think of it as a story as bottom-up uh, story of capitalism during this particular period of time. And because we think of the history of capitalism being the history of Wall Street, you know, big banks, big, you know, bankers, big finance. And you're talking here about a small town building and loan uh, association. And there were many of these all over the country. You talk about how they were everywhere. And your your grandfather's story is just one story, probably hundreds of these stories. So let's talk about it was situated in Colorado Springs. The story is Colorado Springs. Tell me. Uh, what kind of town was Colorado Springs in the 1920s? And it's, you know, it's part of the Wild West. Uh, there were a lot of, a lot of different things happening there, uh, in the state, in the city. So talk to me about the, the, the context that this is going on in. Right. Colorado Springs is a fascinating city and really needs more study. So it's one of the things that I would say about it is young scholars go to Colorado Springs, study it because, you know, 
Tom Franks wrote a book called What's the Matter with Kansas about conservatism uh, in Kansas. And Kansas is a, you know, a kind of way into understanding what happened to America and the rise of, of the right in America. Hey, you can do that, and I try to do that with Colorado Springs. It's a fascinating city. So not exactly the Wild West because when it is founded by um, uh, General Palmer, um, it is meant to be – a clean city. It's meant to not have brothels, to not have drinking. It's meant to be a city which encourages its citizens to be upstanding. So all of that, right, the prostitution and the drinking and the gambling, that happens in what was old Colorado City. In 1917, it gets incorporated into Colorado Springs. But this is to say the industry, the prostitution, all the problematical stuff, that gets located outside of the city, right? Um, Colorado Springs is pretty much run by by men who were mining and milling magnets. So Colorado Springs starts out when it's first founded. Uh, it, it really attracts people by virtue of the fact that it's a health resort town. It becomes a health resort town, right? Um, a lot of people who suffer from tuberculosis. Indeed, my own great-grandfather, that's why they moved there, right? It's supposed to cure TB. But when, in the early 1890s, when Cripple Creek, there's a strike at Cripple Creek and gold is discovered. And Cripple Creek, just a very short distance from Colorado Springs, becomes the biggest producer of gold anywhere in America, Right. It totally changes Colorado Springs, right? You have this infusion of capital into the city. And a lot of the men who make their money on Cripple Creek Gold moved to Colorado Springs. It's a, they're a varied lot, these mining magnets. You know, you have somebody, uh, there's one character who's really, really important who all, he was at all, he was, he had been a carpenter and he was a union man. He never changed. And he loved sort of thumbing his nose at the other mining magnets. But a lot of the, the mining magnets who become the most powerful over time uh, are men who are called socialites by the workers. And they're virulently anti-union. And so one of the things that I really stress in this book is that to understand men like my grandfather, who run the building and loan industry there, you have to understand that the working class is there. And the working classes are the bread and butter of that industry, right? Um, that the working classes have already been defeated by really 1904, 1905 in, in that Pikes Peak region. There was a... a very important strike there. And to make a, a long story and, and a violent story short, the union loses. And as a consequence, there are deportations of, of unionists from the region. And the whole region is really remade in ways that make the working classes more vulnerable, uh, both to labor exploitation, but also to money men uh, and loan men like my grandfather, who starts out not as a building and loan operator, but instead as a loan shark. Now, let me ask you a question about these building and loans. What's the origin of these institutions, and how do, how do they work, and how do the depositors look at them? Well, that's a complicated okay, – answering that is complicated. So if I don't fully answer it, uh, make sure that I, 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 that I circle back. 
building and loans are um, really a, they're an English innovation, and they were meant to. I think the first ones were actually formed in Scotland, and they were they come to this country um, by the I believe the 1830s, and they are meant to be vehicles for home ownership for the working classes, right? With this, and for thriftiness, they're meant to make working people become thrifty homeowners and in such a way as to allow them to become uh, more prosperous, not rich, but to be able to have a good living, right? And what happens in America is that, well, let me, before I answer that, before I go, I don't want to get ahead of myself. And what happens is that with a building and loan, you're able to become a member and with very little money um, buy shares into that building and loan. Okay, you could spend as little as ten dollars, let's say in eighteen eighteen seventy five and buy the shares necessary to begin the process of building a home. Keep in mind most people were building homes, not buying homes that were already used quote unquote right They were building their own homes, so with very little money, they were able to get the shares, buy the shares that would then allow them to make monthly payments. So the way that a BNL worked was that you were able, it sort of prefigured the amortization that became the sort of amortized mortgage that became typical um, after the depression in this country. It prefigured that. And it was a very popular way. For, think kind of like a co-op? In a certain way. Yeah, in a certain it is it is. And in fact, building and loans were part of a larger movement, the cooperative movement in this country. And one of the things that fascinated me about it, it took me a while to, to sort of understand this, is that okay, you have these building and loans and they're part of this cooperative movement, which stresses thrift and stresses sort of coming together as a community to help one another. So think of it this way home ownership for those who are building and loan members, becomes a kind of cooperative enterprise in which your, you know, your neighbors buying a home is really helping everybody, right? It's, it is the George Bailey <laughs> model, right? It really is. That is the original model. And it's a very different model and understanding of home ownership than what comes to prevail in America, which is, a very individualistic orientation. And one of the things that we can talk about later, I hope, is how that individualistic orientation can lead people sort of to the right. But the, one of the reasons it's hard to talk about building and loans is that there's no one template. They change from state to state. And, and in that sense, very much like banks in the years before the Depression, just this patchwork. And also, uh, how are they regulated? Or maybe they're not regulated. They're not regulated much. That's the thing. And in particular, they're not well regulated in the West. And so that's why there are so many bad losses in the West. But, but not just in the West. I mean, you look at the city of Philadelphia, which was called the city of homes. There was, there was no city in America that had more BNLs than Philadelphia. And, you know, when the BNL industry failed in the 30s there, I mean, it was really, really bad. And that was true in many places. It was, happened in Texas. And there could be these, these mega associations that, that failed, but it could also be associations like my grandfather's, right? Which was, they had, he had 3,500 members, right? In Colorado Springs and beyond. 
And it took, it took in his case, it took depositors, when his business failed, it took them 10 years to get 41% of their investment back. But one of the reasons that it's hard to talk about B&Ls is they change so much, even nationally, because they do start out as these cooperatives, right, these sort of non-profit financial institutions, that by the 1880s, very unscrupulous, dodgy businessmen have begun to take control over, and they've begun to establish these mega associations. So this is early. So this is like a pot of gold sitting there. It's like a pot of gold. I mean, it's not regulated, right? And they're probably guys who are kind of wise guys or con men who can figure they can sweet talk people to joining, and who knows what's going to happen with their money. Yes. And the way that they sweet talk them is the way that they sweet talk them in the 20s, too, which is in the 1920s, which is to say, look, you can earn more on your money here because we're going to offer you more by way of interest, right? So that's how they lure people in. Interesting thing is, I mean, I did not have the ability, the time to really do this, but I think somebody really needs to look at what happens when these big, this is called the nationals, when the nationals become so prominent in the 1880s, early 1890s, what happens to those smaller associations which are run as cooperatives? How much are they hurt? How much do they lose membership to these big mega associations which fail completely? They fail so badly that there is this terrible worry in the building and loan industry that the industry will be ruined forever. And they establish a trade league. And that trade league then works very hard to get upbeat stories about the industry in the papers as they do during the Depression. And they also work during the Depression when, because the Depression happens, right? And the Depression gets rid of a lot of these associations which haven't been run well, right? Because what happens in the 20s, okay, is that you have another set of unscrupulous businessmen who come in and say, yes, pot of gold waiting here, and start to offer big interest rates, right? Inflated rates of interest to potential depositors. My grandfather offered 6% when the banks were offering no more than 4, and some offered 7 and even more. But, you know, this sounds very familiar. I mean, it doesn't seem like 1920 or 1930. It seems like 1990 or the 80s. Let me ask you a question about your, let's talk about your grandfather, Walter Davis. Why, how did he get to Colorado Springs? What's his background? What kind of man was he? What kind of man is he? I mean, it's fascinating. Here's this guy who was the son of a barber, right? He graduates high school. He wants to be a lawyer. Right. And he's working as a clerk. Right. He's he's basically a stenographer working in the circuit court in Greensburg, Indiana. Right. And he wants to be a lawyer and he tries to be a lawyer. But he doesn't have it. Right. He, he, he doesn't have the connections. He doesn't have who knows. His father gets sick with TB. And so they move in 1905 when he's only about 25 years old to Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs offers him the opportunity for reinvention, right, as it does so many people, right, Go moving to the West, right? And so he prints up these business cards before he leaves, and the business cards 
say that he's a lawyer. He's not a lawyer. <laughs> it's like a lawyer, Greensburg, Indiana. Now, he had worked for a lawyer. Is that correct? He had worked for judges. For judges. Um, and one of the most fascinating things that I found in the family archive, which is pretty extensive, were the letters of recommendation that these judges wrote about him. And they, they are absolutely unanimous in their conviction that he's a great office man. They never, ever, a stenographer, an office man, they never, ever say that this man is a lawyer. So he moves to Colorado Springs with his whole extended family moves, right? And um, he, within no time, he marries his, uh, what seems to be his high school sweetheart from Indiana, and he starts working a variety of jobs, but basically as a stenographer. And at a point in time when stenography is becoming much more of a woman's profession. And he lists himself in the city directory of Colorado Springs as a lawyer. But he's not a lawyer, right? He's not a lawyer. And he, he moves, gradually moves into the business of being a loan shark. And so it's very helpful to list yourself as a lawyer if you're a loan shark because, of course, you scare you know you scare the hell out of people. People are afraid if they've borrowed money from you to go against you, right? And one of the things that I found fascinating about my grandfather is that when you read the description of him that the police put out in the police circular, I mean, this is so detailed. It says everything. I mean, every little strange quirk, right? Quirkiness. And one of them, one of the things that they note is that he has a scar. And so mm, he always wears a vest that's associated with loan sharks. And he has a scar. How does he get that scar? Well, maybe when he was working in his dad's barbershop, maybe he got into an altercation because it could be dangerous work collecting on loans, right? On delinquent loans. And so I would say my, I would say that my grandfather was extremely ambitious. And he was he was willing to cut corners, not as he was not as reckless as some of the other men in the building and loan business, but he was determined to become a powerful man. And he really looked up to the mining magnets And Colorado Springs was a sort of place in the 20s, the teens and 20s, where, you know, the mining magnets were not living yet in the Broadmoor district. They were starting to move there, but in the teens, they were all still downtown. And you could see their cars. You could see their fleet of cars. You could see the clothes that they wore. You could see the mansions where they lived. And he really wanted a piece of that bad. Mm. Let me ask you about your grandmother. <laughs> Lula. Lula. Lula was uh, it, Lula it, it, fascinates me. Yeah, they have a very interesting relationship. Now, uh how did he meet her? And uh, they got married. And then uh, let's talk about how his loan shark business became a, a building and loan. Was that just a matter of calling it something? It was a, a, putting a label on it? Or was there any kind of legal process for doing that? Uh, well, I mean, he, he, he obviously shuts. I mean, he somehow shuts down that, that other business or moves accounts over. There was so little regulation that what happened was that there was beginning to be pressure on loan sharks, both in Colorado Springs that I found in my research and then nationally, of course, um, because there was this, you know, growing unease about the predatory practices of loan sharks. Uh, I don't want to get into that here, but it is one of the more interesting things because scholars do disagree to some extent about how predatory um, successful loan sharks were. Um, 
my my grandfather couldn't have been so very predatory that his reputation was utterly terrible because he 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 purchases a building and loan that is struggling very hard to survive in Colorado Springs. He turns it around in no time and makes it a very much going concern. And he does that both, I think, through offering higher rates of interest. Um, well, I think primarily through offering higher rates of interest. Um, and one of the innovations that he introduces, I think, to the Colorado Springs uh, uh, industry of building and loans is he takes his cue as best I can determine from what he sees happening in California. And he establishes a holding company. And when properties go delinquent, people who have taken out mortgages with him go delinquent when they fail to make payments. He's, he's pretty ruthless. And he takes these over, and they become the property, not of the BNL, but of the holding company. And so within... By 19, let's say, I think he buys that, that building and loan, I believe in 1914, 1915, something like that. By 1920, within about 12 years, he is able to buy some of the best property in downtown Colorado Springs, which is, you know, uh, would have been costly. Would have been costly. As for my grandmother, Lula, she is, orphaned when she's a very young girl, between 9 and 10. And her whole family is wiped out by tuberculosis. She had grown up in a very working-class family. Her father was a stonecutter, um, and, um, and her mother sewed. And she was a shop girl. She didn't finish um, high school. Uh, she was taken on, um, she had a guardian, uh, probably the man who sold her um, cough syrup for her parents and her ailing brothers. And she had, I, I think she married my grandfather, she married Walter because she thought he was going to be rich. And the one thing she did not want was to go back to that tubercular swamp that she had grown up in, in Indiana. She didn't want that. I believe that they met when um, they were in high school together. Um, and she was, she just loved the high life. So she was ambitious in her own way. She was very ambitious. I mean, I do think that she really imagined that he was going to make it big. And the big disappointment for her was that within, what would it be? It would have been about uh, 17 years. He, Walter Davis got involved with his stenographer. And this was somebody named Eva Terry, a single woman. And they carried on this relationship uh, from 1922, at the very least, until uh, until the scandal broke in 1932. And it was quite serious. I mean, the FBI uh, record that I got, the that I filed a FOIA, and I was able to get Walter Davis's FBI record. And included a letter that he wrote to her. I'm not sure that he ever sent it. It, it says unsent. He might have written something else in which the same sentiments were expressed, but he 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 writes to her, um, "It isn't too good to be true. I'm going through with it." By which he meant the divorce. 
And certainly Lula was very, very afraid of a divorce because she didn't know what would await her. He was, I think, also afraid of a divorce because I think he was, you know, presumably worried about any of his financial records being opened up. And so he continued to carry on with Eva. And he had an apartment at the Brown Palace Hotel, the very, you know, Tony Hotel in Denver, where he would see her on the weekends. And he would leave his family behind in Colorado Springs. And Lula was, knew about this. Oh, everybody knew about it. She sort of agreed to it as long as she could be kept up into the lifestyle she had been accustomed to. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, she, it drove her crazy. I mean, and what she would do, and this is one of my favorite stories, is that she, I mean, Lula was beautiful. She was really, really a looker. And um, Eva Terry was also very attractive. I only have two pictures of her, though, and I have many more of my grandmother. And, you know, my grandmother was somebody whom, according to my mother, like all of my mother's father's friends would fall in love with her. You know, she was so, she was sexy and she was beautiful. And so when, when Walter started to see Eva and she discovered it, she would say to my, <laughs> say to my mother, come on, dear, we're going into the car and we're going downtown and we're going to, we're, you know, we're going to be on the lookout for Walter and Eva. And my mother was like 13, 14 then. She was really young. I mean, way too young to be thrown into this, you know, this drama about her parents' divorce. It really affected her. And um, so they would go downtown, and Lula knew which hotel or hotels they would shack up in. And she would park across the street, and they would wait to see them. And she would pay attention to whatever Eva was wearing, knowing that Walter would have probably picked it out for her because he had always picked out Lula's clothes and she would go either to Denver or to a Colorado Springs uh, store and she would pick out the same outfit and she would wear it as if to say, you know, I I know what you're up to exactly. (laughs) Now, what kind of life did they build for themselves? You describe as sort of pretty, they liked to travel. They liked to nice things. Uh, Well, here's the thing. I mean, you said that my grandmother was sort of okay with the relationship. She really wasn't. I mean, with uh, Eva, she really hated it and she felt humiliated by it. And so her way out of that was to angle for her daughter. And I think that my mother wanted this, too, to go to boarding school in New York. And so she went to this boarding school in Cooperstown, um, which was a, a fair distance from New York City, but it allowed my grandmother, right? It, it allowed Lula to spend vast amounts of time in New York. So she would hole up in, inevitably she would take my mother, Dorothy, let's say in August to the boarding school in Cooperstown. She'd come back to New York and she began to meet my mother's, um, mother's friends and they became her friends in New York, right? And some of these people were quite prominent. At least one of them was. And she would hole up inevitably in uh, usually the Waldorf Astoria. And she would develop a cold. And, you know, she came from a tubercular family. And so I think, you know, it's possible that um, that she had very weak lungs. But she would always get sick. (laughs) And she would be there for months at a time often. Right. And so this suited her just fine. So is it sort of like um, they started developing sort of a, a parallel, a different separate lives, right? 
uh, yes, Walter has his uh, his uh, his sweetie. He, in Denver, and your mother is in New York. No, your grandmother's in New York. Your mother's at the boarding school. Okay, so Walter is dealing with this building and loan. What kinds of dishonest practices was he involved in that eventually got, you know, uncovered? Well, okay, so um, so one link I want to make here before I talk about the dishonesty is um, I think it's important I mean, the family story is important insofar as my grandfather found himself in a situation in which he's trying to appease everybody. He really doesn't want a divorce, right? Because he doesn't want all of his financial stuff to be known. doesn't want it out there. I think he also is very attached in his own way to Lula. And he loves his daughter. He loves Dorothy. He doesn't want to lose that. He also is in love with Eva. And so he has to kind of keep all three of these balls, <laughs> you know, um, going, right? You yeah. can't let a ball drop. What does that mean? It means money, right? It means he needs to be able to have the money that will support what what is becoming two women and yes. a daughter <laughs> and, and that's this is a lot of money i mean he's making monthly payments to eva of three hundred and fifty dollars now he's doing that throughout the depression even you know i mean that's a lot of money that's a lot of money three hundred and fifty dollars is more than most professional men certainly in colorado were making you know, it was a lot of money. That was one of the that was one of the items that really made the headlines. So how did he do this? Well, I mean, the holding company is a big part of this. I mean, when people would default on their mortgages, and they did, and they did with increasing frequency, right? Um, Colorado begins to experience a decline in um, in, in property value um, before 1929. Certainly, it's true of a lot of the West and. So there are these defaults, and and so what he does is that he increasingly um, uh, then will try to sell those properties with the with the profits going into the holding company, right? Fleming and Company is what he called it, and Fleming was the name of his effectively his handyman. The poor man who then gets like you know hauled before a grand a grand jury after the scandal, and it's like. He's a handyman, right? But because his name is attached to this holding company, can you imagine? It's impl implicating someone who otherwise would be not even considered a, an, a suspect. Exactly. So I, I think it's fair to say that some of the profits that rightly belonged to the Building and Loan Association were finding their way into the holding company. Um, but this is all, keep in mind as well, that my grandfather is paying out over this period of time, about a 10-year period until his business fails in 32, he's paying out close to half a million dollars more in interest than is supportable. And me, that's true. Of, let me ask you, do you think this was, did he, okay, first, was it an issue of, bad accounting, he wasn't an accountant, and he just, like, I'll just put it over there, was it an issue of, I, you know, uh, did he realize that this was uh, going to run out, or was it an innocent sort of, like, you know, pay paying people more than he could afford to pay them in interest? Was it, 
was it deliberate or was it that he really didn't understand how this all was going to snowball? And he just oh, thought, Oh, well, I mean, think about it. I mean, nobody knew that the depression was going to be the depression, right? And so in some sense, that would be true of everybody. Nobody knew that. I mean, and think about it. I mean, in that period, you know, you can look at the newspapers. It's fascinating. You know, right after the stock market crash, there's this sense of, oh, huh, well, you know, <laughs> wasn't too bad. I mean, if, if you look at the Colorado papers, at least, there's not the sense of, oh, my God, what has happened? And so I, I don't think anybody was fully prepared. Um, he certainly wasn't as clever as, let's say, these these Wall Street bankers who, you know, moved money around in such a way as to protect it. He He didn't he didn't have that ability. And I think that what happened was in the early years, let's say 1925, let's say when people default, he is able to make money off of that. And he is able to then buy through his holding company to buy prestige properties. But think about it. By the time we get to 1931, 32, increasingly people are defaulting and you can't sell this property, right? You can't sell it for but a fraction of, and maybe not even then, of what it's worth. So I don't think it was bad accounting. Nobody said that about him. He wasn't the kind of building and loan man, and there were some like this, whose records were disgracefully kept. Uh, that That is a part of the story for the decline and the failure of some building and loans. But I don't think that was true of my grandfather. I think that he took a risk. And had the economy kept on, I think that this was a fraud that he could have perpetrated for far longer. I think eventually probably would have been tripped up by it. But did he think of it? I'm just wondering if he really thought he was doing fraud or whether he, this is just good business. In the end, everybody's going to get their money. We're all going to be better off. Everybody's going to have their home. You know, I'll be better off. Or was it really, you know what I'm saying, uh, a conscious, like, I'm going to defraud these people. These are suckers. And, and, and that just, it's, you know, it's hard. To, I know we can't really know what was in his mind, but uh, I'm just kind of, it makes me wonder. Yes, of course it does. And, of course, this was a, a, something that... He was very optimistic. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> well, here's, here's the thing. It, 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 it's, <laughs> I feel as though I always say this. It's complicated, but it is. Um... On the one hand, you know, court records suggest that he and many other building and loan men lied about the nature of their business. You know, he, he deliberately misrepresented the building and loan as a bank. And this was typical of B&L men. He wasn't the only one in Colorado Springs to do this. Not at all. Um... And people were told, invest with, put your savings here and it will grow. We offer 6%. We offer 7%. And you can get it any time you want. Right? That's what they think. And it's a wonderful life too. There's that, there's that famous bank run scene in a wonderful life, right? It's a wonderful life where, you know, we want our money and we want it now and they think they can really get it. But in fact, they've signed contracts that prevent them from getting it. They, they have to wait. A lot, several, several months, anywhere from 90 days to three months to get their money. 
So my grandfather and other building and loan men were willing to misrepresent their businesses. So I think that suggests that he was willing to um he was willing to to be but yeah yeah now did he did he uh, did he honestly think of himself as committing fraud I don't think so No I that's what I'm, th- I'm thinking I he was so, think so I think he was optimistic I think he thought look I'm going to lie here but in the end everybody's going to get what they need Okay so I want to I want to go on so 1932 <laughs> there's a uh, there's failures everywhere. Right. This, 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 uh, say, how, how do depositors figure out that something's really wrong? <laughs> how do, what the, what do the authorities do with this? Because it's, it seemed to me like when you start talking into the investigation and the depositors and all these people who are, uh, have invested in this or have an interest in it in some way, then nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody knows what they're doing. <clears throat> Nobody knows what they're doing. Well, that's true. I think, I mean, it seems like everybody, like the investigators, everybody, the, the, all the government people, anybody who's, they don't even know where to start. It seems like it's just a mess. Well, they don't know where to start because of the laws. It's one of the reasons that it's hard to say. Or lack of the, or lack of laws. Exactly. You know, the fact that everybody thinks initially that it's part of, um, that it's that it's it's part of the baked in building loan law that if you start a building and loan you have to have your own money invested in it that's what they think and so the initial news reports say well authorities have discovered that uh that Edward Sher who was one of the other building and loan men in Colorado Springs didn't even have a penny of his own invested in the building and loan right <gasps> shock horror well come to find out that was not illegal I mean, it, it probably, sh- it should have been, but it wasn't illegal. Or that you were supposed to fairly represent the state and condition of your business. People assumed that was law. And so one of the initial charges against my grandfather and against a lot of these BNL men was that they had misrepresented the condition of their business when the build when they were asked to report on the condition of their building to the building and loan supervisor of the state. But it wasn't against the law, it turns out. It's amazing what wasn't against the law. Nothing was against the law. They didn't, they didn't have the basic uh, structure to even things do like, you know, annual audits or anybody could, somebody could come in and ask for the books and, and any of this. It's incredible. I mean, the, it, it was, they did not have, it's true, they did not have the resources. And the thing that's quite shocking about this is that by the time of the Depression, when, when, when the Depression hits, um, the building and loan business is a much bigger business than the state bank business in Colorado. Many more depositors, much more money, and yet the resources for the office that was meant to regulate the building and loan business was something like, had a budget that was something like, I may have this wrong, but it was between, like, let's say a half and a third of the budget that was allocated for the supervisor of the banks. And so there was no way that the people, that the personnel who were meant to um, to regulate this industry to some extent were able to. But then on top of it, you know, you look at, you look at um, there was the, at the time of the crash, the building and loan, um, the state building and loan agency in Colorado was run by a guy named Eli Gross. 
Um, and this was a man who was not an accountant, who had no background in business, and um, who had a kind of round table of advisors who consisted of building and loan men. And one of them was my grandfather. And uh, another one was uh, a big-time um, building and loan man in nearby Pueblo, Colorado, who actually was part of a trio who were found ultimately guilty of uh, a number of fraudulent business activities. But it took forever. And by the time that that case, by the time that that particular case had worked its way, it took years through the, through the Colorado court system, uh, there were boxes and boxes related to, to that case had been generated of paperwork, right? And, you know, they would be found guilty. That would be overturned, right? Then they'd be found guilty again. Then that would be overturned. But it seemed like the prosecutors even did not know even what to prosecute. The judges didn't know how to adjudicate in these cases. The depositors, which it's what I want to get back to, is the depositors themselves, the little guy who's put money right. in this thing. How do they do respond? And it seemed like they had a schizophrenic sort of response. At one point, they want the government or somebody to save them from this. But at the other hand, they don't want a bunch of laws either. Yes, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, talk about that. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean... The first time that I found any evidence of building and loan failures in any of what I was reading, when I first started doing the research on this book, because at first I thought, well, maybe Colorado was really anomalous. Maybe it didn't happen anywhere else. I was reading Elizabeth Cohen's Making a New Deal, and she has a section in that book where she talks about building and loans and the failure of building and loans, especially those targeted towards African Americans and white ethnics. Um, but it took me a long time to sort of see that this was part of a much larger national problem. Now, in Chicago, and indeed in much of California, where there were also a lot of failures, uh, depositors really wanted the government to come in and fix this, right? Um, in Colorado, the sentiment was decidedly different, at least in Colorado Springs. And that's because... The depositors in Colorado Springs organized um, in the summer of 32. As these associations were falling apart, they established a depositors committee. And that committee is run by the very same, some of the very same men who are at that moment part of a tax limitation group in, Color in El Paso County, which is the county that Colorado Springs is a part of. And it's a very, in some ways, a very radical um, anti-taxpayers uh, group in El Paso County whose president at one point in time during the scandal was a man named Merrill Shoup, the son of the former governor of Colorado, a Republican, who is one of Barry Goldwater's earliest supporters. Right? Not a lot of work has been done on this taxpayers, uh, this taxpayers movement. Uh, there is some good work that's been done on it, but not a lot. It's really still understudied. And in Colorado Springs, what you find is that, yes, they want the, they want the heads of these B&L guys on several platters, right? They want to prosecute Eli Gross, who's the, who is the, the man on the state payroll who's supposed to regulate these B&Ls, right? They want to get rid of all of the guys who are part of city government in Colorado Springs. But one of the reasons that they want that is that the current leadership, city leadership in Colorado Springs, is not 
into limiting taxes. They want to improve the city. They want the airport. They want all these things that taxpayers, and this is a cross-class movement, but taxpayers who are in fe feeling increasingly beleaguered as the depression settles in don't want to pay, right? You have to understand taxes in America, in most American communities, and certainly Colorado Springs, throughout the 20s, they begin to increase, 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 right? Of these property taxes? Yes. Mm -hmm. And various bond issues, right? And so they really want to, in Colorado Springs, they really, they want to limit government. They want to be, they want to have the Taxpayers League in El Paso County be the entity which basically makes all decisions, basically has veto power over all financial dealings, bond issues, budgets, everything. They, they actually lose that. But it is to say that there is a radical anti-tax consciousness. Among the depositors. Among some of the depositors and certainly the leadership. And so they don't really want big, they, they have, you know, they have. It's schizophrenic. They don't really, they're not really behind the new, they're not feeling it for the New Deal programs, which are beginning to ramp up. Right. There's even suspicion about the HOLC, Homeowners Alone Corporation, which will do so much to help so many people um, be able to refinance their mortgages. Right. They are very, very suspicious of government. And so, yeah, it, it, so what you find transpiring in Colorado Springs is not what you find transpiring in much of America, where people are really calling for more government uh, regulation. Now, ultimately, what happens nationally is that you find that the trade league for the building and loan association basically throwing building and loans under the bus and they reinvent themselves they reinvent themselves as the savings and loan industry which is now going to be federally insured it's it's going to have a limit on what can be offered by way of um Interest rates, and you're not going to find those 6% or 5 you know, you're not going to find those kinds of interest rates. It's going to be regulated. And, um, and so ultimately regulation does happen at the, at the national level. But you find, for instance, in California, angry depositors there push for some sort of restitution from the state. You know what these depositors say to, to their Congress people, they say, you know, you guys were sleeping on it. You guys did not regulate this industry, which stole our money. We think that there should be a bill passed that would give us restitution because some people lost quite a lot. So then somebody has to pay taxes to pay for that. Well, that is true, too. <laughs> and, but, but that bill, it was called the Biesemeyer bill, after a guy named Gilbert Biesemeyer, who ran... Big building and loan Hollywood, Hollywood Guarantee, suffers an $8.5 million shortfall. He gets sent to prison. And so they, they, they really push in a lot of the depositors in California for something that is, you know, a, a bill of restitution. That does not happen in Colorado because in Colorado, it's already becoming the case that, that there's a kind of consensus that Government should not be big. The government should be small. The government should be starved. <laughs> they, but they had small government. Look what they, what they got. Look, look what they got. I know. It is, it is in fact true. 
Um, it is true they weren't well served by it, but um, but it's it's simply for some people at least it made them dig their hills in deeper, and so. That's one of the most interesting things I think about the story is the backstory of conservatism in Colorado, uh, which of course every you know most people know is a fairly conservative state. It's changing a bit, but it's been for decades very very conservative, over a hundred years. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to kind of put all this story of your your grandfather and the depositors and the buildings and loan and all this kind of all this that we're talking about within a bigger story of America and capitalism. What do you think that the big lesson here, or where are the big questions that we still need to answer about this? Well, I think one of the things that fascinates me is when we're looking at the white working classes, um, and I, I pluralize that, and I explain why in the book. We don't have time now to go into that. But when we're looking at the white working classes in America, um, I think one of the most fascinating things that I discovered in, in Shortfall is the extent to which you can see that their rightward drift didn't begin in the 1960s, as many people imagine. You know, there is a long deray of conservatism <laughs> among the white working classes, if you want to call it the long deray. That might be a bit of a stretch. Um, And it does go back. You can look at Colorado and you can see working class people in Colorado opposing old age pensions, right? Yes, opposing um, uh, poor relief on the grounds that, you know, somebody else is getting ahead and they're getting ahead of me. And so how does, I mean, I became, so one of the things that I think that shortfall does And it's, it's building on work that's been done by Katz Nelson and by other people. But it shows that if you're looking at the 30s, you can't simplistically read the 30s as the red decade. You know, you have to take on board the tax revolts that are happening in the early part of the 30s. You have to take on board the fact that in some communities, what you've, the, the kind of activism that's happening isn't, uh, Working people come at, coming out to stop auctions, you know, farm auctions, or you know, engaging in sit-down strikes. It's conservatism, um, and it takes a long time. It takes a very long time uh, for that to come to fruition. I think in the 1960s, and partly it's because during the New Deal years, increasingly New Deal programs, in some sense, buy off the white working classes. They come to understand Social Security, for instance, as, well, a kind of right. They don't really understand that it's effectively a kind of white right because, you know, people of color are pretty much written out of this, right? So they kind of, so in this period, entitlement to them just doesn't resonate, doesn't, isn't understood in any way as deriving from their Your skin color, from their social position, from from their social position as white people, that's not known. Once you find the sort of growth in welfare, in a way that to to those to the white working classes looks as though it's particularly benefiting people of color, then you have a backlash. But 
you can see in the very early years of the Depression that there, and even in the late 20s, that there is this discomfort and unease among some members of the white working class about even other members of the white working class um, getting a pension. It's quite interesting. And so for me, what I find fascinating is how does the white work, how do, how do the white working classes come to develop a consciousness that is so individualistic? It, 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 it's moved so far away from the kind of cooperative, yeah, cooperative consciousness, collectivist consciousness that characterized, let's say, the mid-19th century, characterized people who were part of those building and loans. And as part of that, is part of what happened attributable to the two periods of fraudulent activity in the building and loan industry? You have written a really fascinating story. I mean, it's, it's the narrative is just wonderful. There's so much there. There's so much to do with what you've written. Uh, you've been generous with your time. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. <laughs> thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Please visit me at my website, lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.